If this is your first time or if you're newer, you came at the right time because we're going to start a new series tonight. We're going to start the book of Titus, but before we get into Titus, we're actually going to move our way through the New Testament and study the life of Paul for a couple of weeks because when you open up the book of Titus, the very first word is Paul. And so we're going to pause after that word for a couple of weeks and study Paul. How many of you have done a biographical study of the life of Paul? Just on your own, read a book, maybe done an extensive study, took a class. Good, all right, then my time is not going to be wasted. Clearly not a single human either is interested in Paul or hasn't taken the time in studying Paul. But I hope you will find our biographical study of Paul fascinating and hopefully helpful to your understanding of the New Testament. Paul wrote more books in the New Testament than anyone else. So for that reason alone, we should spend the time to try to understand who he was and how God used him. Because the Paul we know from the New Testament wasn't that Paul his entire life. And so I'd like to separate our study into three sections. Paul as a mercenary who was a vigilante hunting Christians down. Paul who became a missionary for about 30 or so years of his life. And then Paul who became a martyr. And so I hope that as you understand his life through those three phases, it'll help you to be able to understand a little bit more about who Paul was and when he wrote the books that he wrote. So today, I only want to focus on that first category. Paul as a murderer of Christians, a mercenary who went after the group of people that he ultimately joined. It was about five years after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, that Stephen became the first martyr, the first Christian martyr. You know that story from the book of Acts that begins in chapter 6 and then goes into the end of chapter 7. That's where the story of Stephen's martyrdom takes place. And if you just want to turn there for a minute, Acts chapter 6, and you can look at verse 8, and I'll skip around a little bit. But um, it'll help us to understand the framework when Paul enters the New Testament history. The year is about 35, AD 35. Jesus would have been crucified in the year 30, ascended 50 days later or so. And hence we celebrate the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 to empower the first Christians. Acts 6 is about the year 35, maybe the ending of 34, the beginning of the year 35. And in verse 8, Stephen is introduced to us as a man of filled with grace and power. He was performing great wonders and signs, signs among the people. And he became one of the deacons in the early church. The first part of chapter 6 is all about the formation of the deacons. But then look at what it says about him later. Verse 9, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Syrians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against the God. And they stirred up the people and elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. That would be the Sanhedrin, which is the highest authority in Jerusalem. They put forward false witnesses who said, 
This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that the Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And then in chapter 7, most of the chapter is his sermon. He takes us through the Old Testament history of how God redeemed his people. And then he takes us all the way until the moment when he calls people to repentance. In verse 51 of chapter 7, he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. The reason I take us to this story is because in this story of the first Christian martyr, in all of church history, the year is 35, we have the introduction of Saul in verse 58. The very first time Saul, who would later be named Paul, or called rather Paul, that is his Roman name, Saul is his Jewish name, he's introduced for the first time, and this is what he's doing after this event. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them into prison. As Saul is introduced in church history, he's introduced as the enemy of Christians. A man who in verse 58 is watching over the clothes of the murderers of Stephen. Now, the indication here most likely is that Paul's hearty agreement with putting him to death, is more than just simple affirmation, a simple agreement that, yes, he should have been killed. Beyond that, we have some insight into other Greek literature that indicates that the person before whom some kind of an act of homage would have been done or something placed before his feet, he was in charge. So what I think is happening here is Paul or Saul, is not simply a young man who's watching what's happening in the distance as if somebody's clothes might get stolen in the middle of this killing. Rather, he orchestrated the whole thing. By this time, Saul is actually an up-and-coming leader 
in the Jewish world. And so he is now entrusted to oversee the killing of Stephen. He wouldn't be, he's too important to uh, get his hands dirty with blood and dust and everything else that would have come with that kind of a murder. And so he's just there overseeing the whole event to make sure it goes smoothly. Well, immediately Saul wants to pursue this action further. So in verse three, it says that he's beginning to ravage the church. He's dragging people out of their houses in order to arrest them, bring them to court and hopefully get rid of them. This is Luke's introduction. Luke wrote this book. This is his introduction to the life of Saul, who then becomes known as Paul in chapter 13, verse 9. When you look at Paul's legacy, he really overshadows Christendom. The Catholics claim him as a saint. The reformers look to him and his writings and his theological writings as the man who clearly defines and explains justification by faith alone. He's the one who gives us so much theology in the New Testament. If you've ever read the book of Romans, that gives you an insight into the mind of Paul. How astute he was as a thinker, as an, uh, one who argues well to convey, convey a point about theology. He, as I said earlier, wrote more books than anyone else in the New Testament. And as he would commit about 30 years of his life to ministry, he traveled the Roman Empire from east to west, starting churches in the most important cities in the Roman Empire. That was his strategy, to go to the cosmopolitan cities to the port cities, to the beach cities. That's why I like Paul, because he loved the beach. He also loved the beach. He would go to every beach city he could find and start a church there. Because he knew that in those port cities, that was the crossroads for the Roman Empire. Ships would come from various parts of the empire. People would do business together. And then the gospel hopefully would go from one part of the empire to another part of the empire. His ambition, according to Romans chapter 15, is to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named yet. In other words, he wanted to introduce the gospel to the unknown areas of the Roman Empire. In Romans 15, he says, I want to go to Spain. Because from their point of view back in the first century, their understanding of the world was that Spain was the farthest point in the West. And so he says, I want to get as far as possible with the gospel in his understanding of the globe. He planted churches nearly in every single metropolis in the Roman Empire. He traveled about 10,000 miles in his 30 years as a preacher, as a church planter, as a missionary, as a pastor in, 30, in three decades of ministry. He didn't do this by plane, right? You get your miles when you fly, thousands of them. He didn't do this by taxi or Uber. He did this by foot or by ship. So you have to understand 10,000 miles by foot or by ship, that's a significant amount of travel that Paul did. When you begin to try to kind of encapsulate all that he wrote, those 13 letters and maybe even 14, the book of Hebrews was possibly written by him as well. And he's writing this sometimes on a ship. Sometimes he's traveling. And to be able to write so much while he's on a journey, it speaks to his ability to produce significant works for the gospel. So Paul 
ends up being a Christian. But before that, he was a mercenary. He's born in the year AD 1. Okay, you always put AD before the number. Do you know why? You don't say 1 AD. You say 1 BC, but you say AD 1. Who knows why? Matt, you know why. Come on, help me out here. Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, one. That's why. It's a Latin phrase that means in the year of our Lord, you have to put the number after that. BC is before Christ, all right? He knows that. He knows Latin. But that's what you do. So whenever your teacher says, reverse the two, now you know why. AD 1 is when Paul would have been born. Jesus was about five or six years old at that point. Okay, from all that we know, Jesus was probably born between 4 BC or 6, someone in 46 BC in that time period. But because Jesus spent all of his life in Galilee or Judea, their paths never crossed. Even though they were about five or six years apart in age. And Paul grew up in a totally different part of the Roman Empire. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8, he says about himself, I am untimely born. When he thinks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. First chapter 15, that is. He talks about himself not having seen the physical Lord before the crucifixion. He was untimely born in that regard. Now, as you look at early writings after the New Testament, there is a physical description of Saul. You should see some of them on the screen. In the second century AD, there's a book that's called Acts of Paul and Thecla. And this is what it says about Paul. He was a man of small stature with a bald head and bow legs who carried himself well. His eyebrows met in the middle, so he was a unibrow. <laughs> and his nose was, was rather large and he was full of grace. For at times he seemed a man and at times he had the face of an angel. In the 6th century, a Byzantine historian Writes, he had a thick gray beard, light bluish eyes, and a fair and florid complexion, and that he was a man who often smiled. Then in the 14th century, we read, Paul's beard was rather pointed. His large nose was handsomely curved. Can you really have a large nose that's handsome? (laughs) And his body was slight and rather bent. So you read these descriptions and you wonder, first of all, how accurate are they? Second century? 6th century, 14th century, that's quite a bit of time that passed from Paul to uh, the description. Well, we do have descriptions that are early in the catacombs, his drawings, descriptions of him, and they line up. So what I think is happening is these individuals are picking up what the catacombs have, and we have access to those. You can go to Rome and get three catacombs you can visit today. And so there is some evidence that most likely that's a pretty close description of what Paul looked like. But you also have to understand this. For the ancients, the hooked nose, the bowed legs, the meeting, the unibrow wasn't necessarily a negative. You have other important people being described similarly. I know today it's all about being tall, dark, and handsome. But guess what? You'd be a nobody. In the first century, you'd be Diego, he would be the most wanted man. Short, dark, he would be the star. He'd be on the, you know, the, face, the cover of the magazine. Because even the Roman emperor, check this out. Roman emperor Caesar Augustus is described similarly. In other words, being short was a mark of beauty. 
Yes, Diego. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, it says that his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. So in other words, even the New Testament has these indications that Paul wasn't somebody that you would look at like, dang, that guy belongs on GQ. No, you just, okay, this is just a fellow. Like, look at him. There you go. There's Paul. So when you get to heaven, look for that guy. Okay? And then you'll uh, spend some time with Paul. This is a man that ultimately would upset the world, according to Acts chapter 17. He is from Tarsus. He was born in the city of Tarsus. Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey. Back in that era, first century, would have had a population of about half a million people, which was significant for that time period. Rome had a million people, and that was the biggest city in the world. You know that no city reached a million people in population until the 1800s, Paris. Once Rome fell in 476 AD, 476, it would took 1400 years before the next city got to another million in population. So that shows you how massive Rome was to get to half a million for Tarsus. That was impressive. Now, Jerome, a Christian writer, in the 4th century, says that Paul's parents were carried off as prisoners of war from the Judean city of Gishala to Tarsus. So sometime before Paul, we don't know if it's his grandparents or great-grandparents, there's really no clarity in early church history, but somebody in his family was taken captive, and then they moved to Tarsus, and ultimately Paul was born in Tarsus. Tarsus has a 6,000-year history. It's a significant town just in history, in human history. The Assyrians, the Persians, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Cicero, Mark Anthony, Cleopatra, all had some kind of contact politically or militarily with the city of Tarsus. The Rome's first emperor had two tutors from Tarsus. So you understand how important that city was even for education. Because if you're going to tutor the emperor, you're going to get the best of the best. And both of them came from Tarsus. And he favored that city such that he freed Tarsus from taxation. It became a free Roman city. Everybody else had to pay taxes. They were privileged to have Roman citizenship. And at that point in the first century, Tarsus was a booming metropolis. It was known for education, for culture, and for commerce. It was on the coast. It was multicultural. And it was busy. It was kind of like LA. Think of the 405. You can think of Tarsus. It was a busy town with lots of activity. Strabo, one of the ancient geographers, says that the residents of Tarsus were busy pursuing culture, philosophy, liberal arts, and all kinds of education. Now, Tarsus wasn't as elite as Athens or Rome, but it was kind of like right below that. For example, LA, we don't have any Ivy League schools here, right? We don't have any Ivy League schools here, right? <laughs> but we have UCLA. Anybody from UCLA or am I the only one? What? <laughs> Come on. Don't be embarrassed to be associated with the Bruins. Be embarrassed for being associated with the University of Second Choice. That is what you need to be embarrassed by. Come on. Yes. Yes, I'll class. 
The chairman of the elder board is clapping for that. I like it. Thank you, Chris. I'll clap with him. So Tarsus was not a city filled with Ivy League schools, but it had important universities that produced significant thinkers for the ancient world. So you would have places like UCLA and other individuals. They would never have USC. But moving on, (laughs) Paul, growing up here in that city, would have been learned. He would have pursued education because that was common for the people of that city. So he would have studied, studied arithmetic, philosophy, literature, oratory, and religion. Now, as Paul introduces himself in Acts 26, you can read, or Acts 22 rather, you can read that. He meets with a Roman centurion and he talks about being a Roman citizen. Remember that story? Because he's about to beat him and Paul says, hold on. Are you allowed to beat a Roman citizen without due cause? And he panics and says, hey, release him. He was already arrested in shackles. He said, release him. We're doing something illegal. And then he says, how come you're a Roman citizen? You're a foreigner. He's like, I was born a Roman citizen. And the centurion says, well, I had to pay a lot of money to become one. There's really not a clear answer on how much money, but we do have an insight that to become a citizen of Tarsus, you know, second tier city, you had to pay 500 drachma, which is 500 days of wages, which is 4,000 hours of wages, which is basically two years worth of salary. So just compare that. Whatever it, it, it takes to make two years worth of salary. You know, if you LA average salary right now is 75000 a year. So it's about one hundred fifty k if you want to make that comparison. Obviously, you can do that one for one. But that gives you a reference point, And that's just Tarsus. In other words, it was extremely expensive to become a Roman citizen. It was a very prized item that somebody would have. People would carry actual clay tablets, like a passport, that said, I'm a Roman citizen. And if you were a Roman citizen, you had to show that tablet to prove that you're a Roman citizen. And there were seven records all over the Roman Empire make sure to prove that you had true citizenship in case you ever lost your little tablet. You had rights to a trial. That's why Paul appeals to Caesar at the end of the book of Acts because he is able to do that as a Roman citizen. He also had certain rights to be exempt from imperial duties like military. So you could appeal and be exempt from military service. And there are many other trials like you couldn't be flogged, for example, without due cause. This was Paul, born into Roman citizenship, which means one of two things. Either his family was so influential in Tarsus and so renowned and so famous and so important that the the politicians of Tarsus decided to give them Roman citizenship. That's one option. Or option B is part of that uh, moment when the, uh, the politicians, Roman politicians decided to favor Tarsus. They just granted everybody in Tarsus Roman citizenship. So it's unclear exactly from history which one it was, but Paul had Roman citizenship. And he used it to his advantage whenever he needed to, as we know a couple times in his ministry. That's Paul, a citizen, and a Paul, a student. But in regards to his religious convictions, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, that he is circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. 
In other words, Paul grew up in a very conservative Jewish home. Everything in his life was about Judaism. He was homeschooled in that perspective because they wanted him to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. There is a Jewish philosopher in the first century who says that there's a distinction between being a Hebrew of the Hebrews versus being like a Hellenistic Jew, who are Jewish people who became more pro-Hellenistic ideas, the Greek ideas, the secular ideas of that era. And the difference was that the Hebrew of the Hebrews spoke Hebrew at home. That was their first language. So Paul would have grown up speaking Hebrew as a first language. And at that point, by that, what that means is actually it's Aramaic. Hebrew was forgotten by that point by the Jewish people. They forgot it in exile and they started learning Aramaic. And so they brought Aramaic back with them. And so he would have grown up speaking Aramaic as the first language, not necessarily Greek. He would have spoken Greek. We know that from his writings, but his first language would have been Aramaic. It's interesting and ironic that you have an individual who's thoroughly Jewish becoming an apostle to the Gentiles. He says that repeatedly in his writings, that God takes him from such a Jewish saturated environment from the time he was born and makes him focus his whole life, ministry life that is, on the Gentiles. Paul would have been circumcised. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which is an elite tribe. In other words, you had pride if you were a Benjamite. He was named after the first king of Israel, Saul. So you can see the value that his parents placed on Israel's history. And they wanted to connect to that history because they were Hebrew of the Hebrews. They were thoroughly committed to the Old Testament. Paul would have grown up memorizing the Old Testament. He would have copied it on a papyrus to make sure it's in his head. It's in his system. He was thoroughly immersed in scripture. Imagine that. Every single day your life is consumed with scripture. You're memorizing it. You're studying it. That's what he was like from the time he was a kid. And so at about the age of 13 or 14, his family being wealthy, they were tent makers. The reason that we know they're wealthy is because the Roman military needed a lot of tents as they moved from one part of the empire to another. They were lived in tents. And so tent makers was a very uh, good trade. And so they were wealthy. And Paul would pick that trade up later when he becomes an adult. But he grew up in the house of a tent maker. Well, they had money. So at about 13 or 14 years of age, they send him to Jerusalem. They send him to Jerusalem because the best Jewish teacher or rabbi of his era is in Jerusalem. His name is Gamaliel. And so Paul gets into the Ivy League in Jerusalem to study with the best available tutor in his time. From various writings, we know that Gamaliel was extremely, extremely popular. And Paul would have spent the next five or six years of his life studying with him. On the map, you can kind of see, so Paul goes from Tarsus, goes down to Jerusalem. Damascus is circled because ultimately it's on his way to Damascus. Acts chapter 9 says that when, God, when Christ appears to him and he becomes converted. And we'll talk about that next week. But Gamaliel meets Paul when he's a teenager. And for the next five or six years, he spends time following Gamaliel around the city of Jerusalem, 
learning and repeating everything that Gamaliel says. Top left is kind of the city of Jerusalem as reconstructed from that era. And then you can see it the way it looks today. Gamaliel is described in various writings as humble, kind, serving those inferior to him, courageous, and the most illustrious of the school of Hillel. There's what's called the Mishnah, which is the oral law. It's a commentary on the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it describes Gamaliel in this way. When Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. So you have that reverence that these ancient writings uh, convey about this individual. And so Paul ends up studying with this respected Man, this respected man actually is in our Bible. In Acts chapter 5, before the martyrdom of Stephen, the persecution has already begun against Christ's followers, specifically against the apostles. Peter and John, they've already been arrested. They've been beaten. You can see that at the beginning of chapter 5. And so then in verse 38... Well, if you look at verse 34, it says, A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council in the Sanhedrin and gave orders to put the man outside for a short time. These are the apostles. He said, let's put him outside for a minute. Let's talk privately. And this is what he says to them. Men of Israel, verse 35. Be careful what you propose to do with these men, the apostles. For some time ago, Theotis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. They're preaching about Jesus specifically. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be even found fighting against God. And so the rest of the Sanhedrin took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. And verse 42 says, they kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't listen to the authorities who forbade them for preaching the gospel. This is the Gamaliel who taught Paul. By this point, Paul is about 34, 35 years old. That education is over. It had been finished for about 15 years. He left Gamaliel 15 years prior to do his own thing. Now, Gamaliel was part of the more liberal school at that point. You had Shimei who was more conservative and then you had Gamaliel who was more liberal. And so Paul would have been introduced to a variety of subjects in his, let's say, called secondary uh, education, right? The primary education happened in Tarsus, secondary happened in Jerusalem. So he would have introduced him to some Greek writings. We know that because of the quotes that Paul has in his writings. There's multiple. They're kind of peppered throughout the New Testament. He demonstrates knowledge of certain Greek poets, philosophers, and playwriters, Now, some of those quotes are famous, and so there's a debate in scholarship whether he really studied that or if he just kind of knew common knowledge. It's hard to know, but at the same time, we do know that he was familiar with Greek 
writings around his time period and those that preceded him. And so Paul is being taught by Gamaliel. He's taught by Gamaliel specifically how to argue, how to, how to use the law, the Old Testament law, to understand it and to teach it. The goal, the focus of the study and the goal of it is the, New, the Old Testament law and then the use of the law. He became a biblical scholar. And Paul says about himself that he was a master of this. He was a master of it all. You see, Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, you can take a look at that real quick. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians is the first book that Paul wrote. He says in verse 13, you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So Paul says, I was at the top of the class. I was better than all my peers in my studies. And Paul was studying to be a Pharisee. And he was zealous for that. There were about 6,000 Pharisees around that time period. And Paul says in Acts 23, 6, that he's a son of the Pharisees, which probably means that his father was also a Pharisee, which helps us understand how devoted they were to the Old Testament law. The Pharisees come around, kind of form as a group about 150 years before Jesus. That's the first time we get a sense of their existence in the writings. And they become that middle class in ancient Israel. They are the scholars of the Old Testament. And they are zealous for the law of God. They excel at it. They are respected by the people because they're teaching them the ways of God. Now, theologically, they're not the liberals like the the Sadducees. The Sadducees were truly the liberals. They denied heaven and hell. They denied God's sovereignty. They denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of angels and demons. They were the liberals. The Pharisees were the conservative. They weren't radicals like the zealots who were extremists, but they were kind of in the middle. But they believed in freedom and in God's sovereignty and God's providence. They took the whole Old Testament as God's word, whereas the Sadducees only picked up the first five books, the Torah, as God's word. The rest of it wasn't as valuable as as authoritative. They believed in heaven and hell. They believed in punishment for the way you live in this life. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels and demons. And so Paul, when he is formed by that educational system, you have an understanding of what he believes up to becoming a Christian. We believe in all of those things, don't we? You can affirm, yeah, I believe in angels and demons and heaven and hell and judgment and the Bible, the Old Testament being God's word and the New Testament, of course. So in that sense, Paul is coming closer and closer to Christianity and his theology will align with what the Christians taught. But you also have to understand this about Paul. Paul was a true Pharisee. Don't think just because we're talking about Paul, he was a good Pharisee. The Pharisees that you know about in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the Pharisees that Jesus denounces, Paul would have been the poster child for that group. 
So let me give you a sample of what the New Testament teaches about the Pharisees. Matthew 23. You can see that on the screen. The Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the places of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. For you cross sea and land to make a single convert and yet you make a new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus says, woe to you blind guides. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint, dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. For you've, you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also become clean. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous, to others but instead you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness you snakes you brood of vipers how can you escape being sentenced to hell therefore i send you prophets sages and scribes some of whom you will kill and crucify some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town this all applies to saul you have to remember that jesus is describing a 30-year-old Saul, because he would have been that old at that point when this is written, when this is said by Jesus, rather. Acts 26.5, Paul says he was, that he was part of the strictest sect of our religion and thoroughly lived as a Pharisee. So the proof of that is in Acts chapter 8. When he's entering house after house, ravaging the church, trying to destroy it because intellectually he's advancing beyond his peers in his knowledge of scripture and he knows that he's supposed to be zealous for the law of God but practically he knows the application of that knowledge is to get rid of anybody who somehow contradicts the old testament this is Saul by the time he finishes his education, he speaks four languages, Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic. He was a debater. He's part preacher, part lawyer. And he's 20 years old. But to start as a leader in Judaism, you have to be 30. And so he goes back to Tarsus, back to his hometown, joins his father's profession and becomes a tent maker for the next decade of his life. Awaiting his 30th birthday in order to become what he's always trained to be. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he says this in Acts chapter 26. That he was completely committed to this. The strictest observer of the Pharisaic religion. Well, as he turns 30 years old. We meet him in Acts chapter 8. And remember what Gamaliel said about the Christians. Leave him alone. 
right? Leave him alone. Because if it's just human, it's going to fall apart. But if it's from, the, from God, you're going to fight God. Paul did not listen to his mentor. Because Paul didn't merely leave them alone. He actually went after them hard. He went after them. And in Acts chapter 9, it says this in verse 1. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from, from them, from him, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he may bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he was traveling and he began to approach Damascus and the subsequent stories that his conversion takes place. But you can see that the chapter begins with, Saul breathing threats. The actual literal translation here would be he was breathing in threats. As if to say you breathe in to survive, right? To live, right? You breathe in air to live. It's as if his whole existence depended on pursuing Christians. That's the imagery that Luke is trying to create for us. This terminology is used of a racehorse that is snorting and just can't wait to, to run. That's Paul, can't wait to go after Christians and to destroy them. And so he says in Acts chapter 22, I persecuted this way to the death. This, the way was the name for the Christians in that time period. Binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. I received letters from them and started out for Damascus to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. In Acts 26, he talks about something similar. In other words, Paul multiple times in the book of Acts confirms that he was in pursuit of Christians even outside the city of Jerusalem. Between Jerusalem and Damascus, it's about 135 miles, which would have been about a six-day journey by foot. And so Paul makes that journey with the authority from the highest body of authority in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. The high priest gives him the authority to pursue Christians in other towns. And so he becomes a mercenary for the Sanhedrin to find Christians, arrest Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, and ultimately kill them. This is how effective he was. He was trusted with that much authority and with that specific mission. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, that book is written about 30 years after his conversion. This is what he says about that time period when he reflects on it. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote about 20 years after his conversion, and this is what he says. I'm the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He writes the book of Philippians, about 25 years after his conversion. And it says, regarding zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. In multiple books, Paul 
reflects on that time period, however short it was, and is ashamed of it. And says, I'm not qualified to serve Christ because of the way I treated his followers. And you can imagine the psychological trauma that would have on you for the rest of your life, right? If you were initially a KGB agent, pursuing Christians, house to house, arresting, torturing, and killing, or you're in China, or you're in Africa, or you're in the Middle East, and your intent is to find Christians and decapitate them, or to torture them, or to burn them alive, or do whatever that is done to Christians. 200,000 Christians are killed every single year in the world as martyrs. If you're doing that and all of a sudden you radically get saved, can you imagine what you would be thinking about that time period of your life? And now you're on the other end. That's why Paul multiple times has these autobiographical statements and he just can't believe the fact that he has been selected by God to be an apostle who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. But you can kind of see how God prepared him by giving him such amazing education. In Tarsus and then in Jerusalem. And yeah, second education was Ivy League level. And so he learned how to think, how to use scripture to debate and to ultimately advance the gospel and to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. But before all that happened, he says in Philippians 3, he was zealous to persecute the church in the first century. That idea of being zealous for God for the Old Testament had to do with Phineas. Back in Numbers 25, you have Phineas, who sees an Israelite, his name is Zimri, commit infidelity with a Midianite woman. Her name is Cosby, not Bill Cosby, with a Z. And he takes a spear and spears them. Remember that story? Some of you do. Numbers 25, look it up. That story became this standard. Of zeal for God and his law. If you truly love Yahweh, you should be willing to kill for Yahweh. That was the rationale in the first century. Paul is trying to do exactly that. He says, I know Phineas. I've got his poster hanging in my house. I want to be like him. So he begins to pursue Christians. Because in his understanding, loyalty to God is loyalty to the Old Testament. And anybody who says you should worship Jesus Christ is an idolater, right? You only worship Yahweh. And so in his mind, he doesn't understand that Jesus Christ was God. And so for him, this is blasphemy. And so Paul ends up pursuing Christians because he thinks he's doing exactly what God wants him to do. And Jesus predicted this would happen. Because in John chapter 16, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before the cross, this is in the upper room, the final supper before Gethsemane. He says this in verse 2, They will make you outcasts from the synagogues, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you will think that they are worshiping God. That's an example of Paul. He thought that by killing Christians, he was worshiping God. And then you open Titus 1. And in the very beginning of all the ways to start this book, he says, Paul, 
a slave or bondservant of God. He never introduces himself with that title in the New Testament. This is the only place he calls himself a slave of God. A persecutor of the church of God. We know that elsewhere. We read those passages. But now he becomes the slave of God. The transformation takes place. Because he now begins to see himself as fanatical as I was. To destroy the church of God. I am now going to be as fanatical to serve God. I'm going to be his slave. And the idea behind being a slave was more about lacking freedom than fulfilling some kind of service. It emphasized your bondage, not your duty. And so he sees himself as completely under the authority of God. Now in the Old Testament, the prophets are called servants of God or slaves of God. Moses is called the servant of God. Joshua is called the servant of God. So there is this Old Testament illusion as well that these individuals were truly under God's authority to proclaim his message as Paul would now proclaim the message of the gospel. And of course, we see Paul says, I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. That meant I'm a messenger. I'm an ambassador. I'm somebody who's been sent by him. So Paul now begins to align himself when he writes Titus about 30 years after his conversion. He says, I'm no longer a persecutor of the church of God. I'm now a slave of God. And that change was radical. And it was supernatural. Because to go from what we just described to now becoming a man who wrote 13 epistles, who would ultimately be martyred for Christ. And if you read 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 11, you will see verse after verse after verse after verse how many times he was persecuted for the gospel. That's a radical change. And that only happens when somebody truly meets Christ. He met him supernaturally on the road to Damascus. We'll talk about that next time. But that completely changed his life. And that's exactly what happens to every single person who meets Christ. Because the gospel either completely changes you or it's a fraud. There's no such thing as a little fanatical for God. A small slave of God, but not fully. I'm not fully giving up my freedom. No, you are either a servant of Christ, a slave of God, and a a messenger for God. Or you're not. That's what Paul is trying to say here. And so when he writes Titus, he's trying to say, this is my identity. This is how I define myself. This is how I view myself. He doesn't say, Paul, I've authored 10 books by the time I wrote Titus. I've started 20 churches. I've traveled 8,000 miles. I've preached the gospel to Nero, which he had by that point. Or to the Praetorian Guard, the secret police of Nero. Philippians 1 says that. He doesn't talk about his Christian accomplishments. He says, when I think of my life as a Christian, I'm a slave of God. And I think if there's anything to take away from this little history lesson, is to say, how do you view yourself? Because if you're a true Christian, 
That's how you view yourself. You have no freedom. You're a slave of God. I'm a slave of God. And that focuses on our relationship, on the lack of freedom to do whatever else we want to do that is contrary to God's expectations. So as we get into discussion groups, at the very least, contemplate that idea. What is preventing you from living like a slave of God? What in your life? Be as transparent as you want to be. At the same time, be prudent in your disclosures. But let's have an honest conversation because if we're going to take Titus for the next multiple weeks and months to understand what it means to live a life that is pleasing to God, the key verse, I would say, in this book is in chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. That's the conversion I just talked about. And then this happens, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Does that not summarize the life of Paul? Zealous for good deeds, purified his own possession. He's a slave of God. And there's a separation from the world. And it all begins with simply acknowledging that you're a sinner who needs to be forgiven of his or her sin. And you appeal to Christ for that forgiveness who alone can offer it. And he does forgive you. And then you are set on this path of serving God and being a slave of God. Let me pray for us as we get into discussion groups for the next 15 minutes. Lord God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for showing us in scripture of his radical transformation. And I know that all of us who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ because we've believed in him as savior. We've confessed our sins. and We now confess him as Lord and savior. We've also undergone a radical transformation in our lives. And now I ask that as we talk about these truths, that they would change us, that they would really make an impact on our lives and on our thinking and on our decisions, that we would live lives that clearly demonstrate that we belong to you. We pray this to your wonderful name. Amen.